Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. Uh, thank you for joining us in Harrisburg this evening. Uh, we're happy to have you here at the Scholar, and especially excited to have uh, Sean Carroll here with us this evening. Um, before we begin, uh, I'd like to kindly ask everyone to silence our cell phones for the evening. Thanks for checking on that. Um, and also, uh, I have a, a few announcements here. Uh, if you have not yet heard, we have announced the dates and authors for the Harrisburg Book Festival. It's October 3rd through the 6th. Um, please check out our website at www.hbgbookfest.com for all the details. We've got some really great authors, over 20 authors coming into town. Um, we're also going to have a tent sale across the street from the bookstore in the grass lot. Uh, we're going to have about 20 plus thousand books priced at three, two, and one dollars. Um, again, October 3rd through the 6th, all events are free and open to the public. Um, last week, we also announced that we're hosting Sir Salman Rushdie this December, December 9th. It's a Monday. We have tickets available both online and in store if you want to read the book beforehand. So uh, definitely come check that out. We're about halfway there in less than a week, so we're going to sell out in another week. Um, at this time, I'm going to welcome uh, to the stage Dr. Morgan of Dickinson College, who is going to introduce our speaker here this evening. Good evening, my name is Windsor Morgan. I'm a professor of physics and astronomy and director of the planetarium at Dickinson College. It's so, can you hear me? Oh, okay. It's, pre I'm pretty tall. It's uh, great to uh, see so many people uh, here in Harrisburg for a physics talk. Carl is a research professor of theoretical physics at the California Institute of Technology, Caltech. He received his PhD in 1993 from Harvard University. His research has focused on fundamental physics and cosmology, especially issues of dark matter, dark energy, space-time symmetries, and the origin of the universe. Recently, Sean has worked on the foundations of quantum mechanics, the emergence of space-time, and the evolution of entropy and complexity. Carol is the author of Something Deeply Hidden, the big, the big picture, the particle at the end of the universe, from eternity to here, and space-time and, space and geometry, an introduction to general relativity. He's been awarded many prizes and fellowships by the National Science Foundation, NASA, the Sloan Foundation, the American Institute of Physics, the Royal Society of London, and, and the Guggenheim Foundation. Carol has appeared on TV shows such as The Colbert Report, PBS's Nova, and Through the Wormhole with Morgan Freeman, and frequently serves as a science consultant for film and television. He is host of the weekly Mindscape podcast, and he lives in Los Angeles. Please join me in welcoming Sean Carroll. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, so is this good? If I am right here, can you hear me? Even like I see there's like an upper level. You're all very dark, but all right, you can hear me. Very good. Thank you so much uh, for coming out tonight. It's, you know, the book, I wrote a book, there it is, Something Deeply Hidden. It's about quantum mechanics. The world does not need another book about quantum mechanics, necessarily. There are plenty of books written about quantum mechanics. But I think, nevertheless, there's room for something new to be said about quantum mechanics, which is why I wrote this book. And the, the, the impetus for writing this particular book basically comes from, let me see if I can do this. Um, Richard Feynman, who was my predecessor at Caltech, where I'm a research professor of physics, 
Uh, he's a famous physicist, and he once said these words, I think I can safely say that nobody understands quantum mechanics. In physics talks, I like to try to explain things, but what I'm trying to claim here is that even the people who understand quantum mechanics the best admit that they don't understand it. Now, that's okay. It's perfectly okay to admit that we don't understand things, and it is perfectly okay to not understand them. That's how physics makes progress. There are things we don't understand. We try to understand them better. We invent theories, we do experiments, etc. That's good. The problem is that faced with the fact that we don't understand quantum mechanics, physicists have decided that it's okay that we don't understand quantum mechanics. Now, I'll, under, I'll explain to you a little bit about what quantum mechanics is. It's the most important, fundamental, foundational theory in all of modern physics. Without quantum mechanics, you cannot explain lasers and transistors and how this computer works. You cannot explain why stars shine or why this table is solid. Quantum mechanics is absolutely crucial to how we think about modern physics, and we don't understand it, and we seem to think that that's okay. What you, what you would imagine, given that our most important theory is one that we don't understand, is that understanding quantum mechanics would be the highest priority goal in all of physics, right? People who worked on this idea, trying to understand quantum mechanics better, would be the superstars of physics, the celebrity physicists. They would get the highest salaries, universities would fight to hire them and stuff like that. And of course, exactly the opposite is true. If you are a student or a young faculty member and you let your colleagues know that you might be interested in trying to understand quantum mechanics, you get gently nudged away from that, if not just fired, okay? And this has happened in history. I think it's changing a little bit, but the analogy that I like to use, I should just take this. There we go. The analogy I like to use is, you know, if you, we're at a bookstore, I'm sure that somewhere in the store is uh, a collection of Aesop's fables. So you remember the fable of the fox and the grapes. The fox sees these grapes up there. The grapes look really juicy and yummy. The fox jumps up to try to get the grapes, but they're too high. The fox cannot reach them. So the fox says, you know what? I never wanted those grapes anyway. They were probably sour. In this parable, the role of physicists is being played by the fox and the role of understanding quantum mechanics is being played by the grapes. Back in the 1920s, 1930s, physicists worked very hard to try to understand quantum mechanics. They couldn't quite do it, and they gave up, roughly speaking, and they decided they never wanted to understand it. So these days, you can meet physicists who will tell you to your face they don't want to understand quantum mechanics. They don't want to understand reality and how nature works. All they care about is making predictions for observations. The moral of my story will be is we should aim higher than that. We should aim to try to understand how the world works. Nope, no clicker. All right, there we go. I'm going to click it myself. Um, good. So now I want to give you a very, very brief, lightning fast history of quantum mechanics that is entirely inaccurate as history. But I want to lead up to the conclusions that I want to draw because the conclusion that's, conclusions I want to draw are extremely dramatic. And you should not believe me just because I say them. I want to give you the impression, or at least let you know that I believe, that these conclusions that I draw didn't come out of nowhere. We were led to them by some logic and some experiments. So the way I like to present quantum mechanics starts with atoms. You've all seen this picture on the right, the cartoon picture of an atom. This is due to Ernest Rutherford, a New Zealand physicist who moved to the UK and worked at Cambridge. 
He was the one who figured out that an atom is not sort of a homogeneous blob. It has a central mass called the nucleus, and there are electrons orbiting around the nucleus. So we call this the Rutherford atom. We now know that the nucleus has protons and neutrons in it. He didn't know that, but that would come pretty soon thereafter. This is an extremely helpful model. This is why we still draw pictures of it, but it's also completely wrong. It can't be like this. So if you think about 1909 when they were talking about these things, we still believed in classical mechanics. This is the theory handed down to us by Isaac Newton from the 1600s. And classical mechanics, like quantum mechanics will be after it, classical mechanics is not a specific theory of this or that physical system. It's a paradigm, it's a framework in which you can do all sorts of different theories. So classical mechanics had been so successful that literally every physicist afterward figured that classical me mechanics was exactly right, and the only thing we had to do was figure out which theory to put into that framework. But if you have a system like this with a little electron orbiting an atomic nucleus, classical mechanics predicts a disaster. You know, there's light coming from the ceiling, from the projector and so forth. All of these light rays, are electromagnetic waves, right? They are little fluctuations in the electric and magnetic fields that fill this room, and they are all caused by electrons jiggling up and down. When you take a charged particle, so that's a charged particle like an electron has an electric field around it, you shake it, the electric field oscillates, that's light, okay? But these little electrons in this picture are oscillating. They're going around in an orbit very, very quickly. So they should be giving off light. And if they give off light, the electrons should lose energy, which means they shouldn't orbit forever. They should spiral into the nucleus. And you can calculate how quickly that should happen. And the answer is something like 10 to the minus 11 seconds. That's very fast. So what this predicts pretty unambiguously, according to classical mechanics, is that matter is completely unstable that you and me and this table and the earth and the sun should all collapse to a point in 10 to the 11 seconds or something like that. We can do the experiment. No, it didn't happen, okay? So there's something wrong about classical mechanics when it comes to atoms. Now, there's a lot of effort going into what it could be. We're gonna skip some steps. Here is what people came up with. They said, well, we've had for a long time this puzzle about whether light is a wave or a particle. Maybe when we think we have a particle, like an electron, maybe there's something wavy about it. Maybe the electron is not a particle. Maybe we should think of the electron as a wave, as sort of a cloud, something that is spread out. And we, since our imaginations are not very good, we will call this wave the wave function. And so instead of thinking of an electron as orbiting in some circle or an ellipse, the nucleus of an atom, there's a wave-like thing, the wave function, and it obeys an equation, and you can sort of solve the equation and ask what could the wave be doing? And the answer is there's a discrete set of things the wave could be doing if it has a definite energy. There can be hops between these different energies, but an electron with a fixed amount of energy is doing something specific. It has a wave-like structure that is one of these, there's a whole, there's literally an infinite number of possible shapes the wave function can have, but there's, they're discrete, and the, as we go down from the top to the bottom, there's more and more energy in that electron. So there's a minimum energy thing the electron can do, and it's not right on top of the nucleus. It's a diffuse cloud that is spread out around the nucleus. 
Don't ask me how they thought of this. There's a lot of steps involved, okay? But this was the idea. Maybe we could replace electrons, little particles, with waves. That would explain why atoms are stable. That's a good idea. And then, of course, because we're physicists, we want an equation. And so I get to show you this equation because you're going to need it for the quiz that I'm going to hand out at the end of the talk. This is the famous Schrodinger equation. Here's Erwin Schrodinger. He wrote down this equation. If we call the wave function by the letter psi, that's the Greek capital letter psi, then the wave function can change over time and has an extent over space. And it solves this equation. Basically, it says however much energy is described by the wave function tells you how rapidly it changes with time. You actually don't need to know the details. That was just a joke. I know there's young people in the audience who might get worried. Okay? <laughs> there will be no quiz. We're just here to learn things. It doesn't matter the details of the equation. What matters is there is an equation. As soon as you hand physicists an equation and say, this is what describes this system, they're happy. They say, oh, I can now solve this equation. I can ask my students to solve this equation. I can torture generations of future students <laughs> by demanding that they solve this equation over and over again. And that has, in fact, come true. But the point is that this is around the time, 1926, 1927, when quantum mechanics reached its final form, when we said, okay, good, we got equations, we have wave functions, this is good, we have quantum mechanics. But there's a huge problem with this, which is that this equation describes electrons, as I said, as like a cloud spread out as a wave function. But when we look at electrons, they don't look like puffy spread out clouds. This is an actual image of a uranium sample, so a little chunk of uranium, which is a radioactive element, in a cloud chamber. So this is a uh, particular setup where if a charged particle moves through the cloud chamber, it ionizes some little bubbles and they show up, okay, as, as visible streaks there. So in this picture, every one of those little line segments that you see appearing is a charged particle, usually an electron, being emitted by that uranium. If you look at the Schrodinger equation and you actually solve it, like a physics undergraduate student would do, you can ask, what is the wave function of an electron that is emitted by a radioactive atom that is decaying? And the answer is, it comes out in a spherical cloud. It goes out in all directions. But when you look at it, that's not what you see at all. Every individual electron coming out moves in a line. It looks like it's a particle moving along a trajectory. This is strange. It seems that like the electron is doing one thing when it's just obeying the Schrodinger equation, but when we look at it, we see something else. So clearly something is wrong, right? Something is wrong, and this is still the puzzle that we are working on right now, that we don't quite agree on the answer. But let me tell you the answer that they came up with in the 1920s. The answer they came up with is that wave functions collapse. They said, look, it seems as if electrons behave differently when you're not looking at them and when you are. So let's resolve that by saying that electrons behave differently when you're not looking at them versus when you are. <laughs> let's actually take that ridiculous statement literally, okay? So they say that here it might be a plot of a wave function for an electron that is sitting in its minimum energy state in an atom when you're not looking at it. And then if you look at it, so you measure 
somehow the position of the electron, the wave function suddenly and discontinuously changes. It collapses so that it's isolated, it's localized on one particular location. So that when you're not looking at it, the electrons all spread out. When you look at it, you see it in one particular location. And all you can do is not actually say which location it will be, but predict the probability for it being in different locations. No, I do not want to join the internet. I love the internet, don't get me wrong, but I don't want to join it right now. Okay, so this is the idea of wave function collapse, and you know, you're gonna, you're, you think that I'm gonna say they soon realized that that was silly. They didn't, they enshrined that in the textbooks. So if you take a quantum mechanics course right now as an undergraduate at Caltech or wherever you wanna go, you are taught that there are two separate rules that are obeyed by wave functions. Two separate ways that quantum mechanical systems operate depending on whether you are looking at them or not. There's one set of rules when you're not looking which say that an electron or any other quantum system has a wave function and that wave function obeys the Schrodinger equation. And there's a whole other set of rules when you measure it, when you observe it, the wave function collapses and there's a probability for the collapse to be in different places, okay? This is what is called the Copenhagen interpretation, although people argue about whether or not individual people in Copenhagen believed it, so sometimes you just call it the textbook interpretation. This is what is taught uh, in universities when we teach people quantum mechanics. So to illustrate this, I mean this is a mess obviously, but to illustrate it in action, Let's uh, appeal to the thought experiment stylings of Erwin Schrodinger, and he invented this little box with a cat in it, right? Schrodinger's cat, you've all heard about this. Schrodinger's cat is the idea that you have a box, cat inside, and you put up an experimental apparatus that consists of a radioactive source that decays but not very often, a Geiger counter or some other kind of detector that will click when the radioactive source decays, and then when it clicks, it lifts open a box or it smashes a vial or somehow releases some gas into the box. Now, in the original version of Schrodinger's cat, the gas was cyanide and the cat died. And uh, this is a true quote. Erwin Schrodinger's daughter once said, I think my father just didn't like cats. <laughs> I do like cats, so I'm changing the experiment so that it's sleeping gas in the box. There's no reason to kill the cat. The experiment works just as well either way. And what it says is, if you take literally Schrodinger's equation and you ask, what is the state of the cat thought of as a quantum mechanical system, okay? What is the wave function of the cat? Well, you, you know the following, you know that if the cat is perfectly alive, you know what its wave function is. If the cat is perfectly, sorry, awake, if it's perfectly asleep, you know what its wave function is. By the rules of quantum mechanics, by Schrodinger's equation, the radioactive source has a wave function which says it's partly decayed and partly not. That means the detector has a wave function that says it's partly clicked and partly not. And the box is partly open and partly not, and therefore the cat is partly awake and partly asleep, okay? It is not, the, Schrodinger's whole point was, surely you don't believe this, right? <laughs> I mean, Schrodinger invented the Schrodinger equation, but he didn't invent this set of rules about probabilities and collapsing, and once that had come on the scene, he was like, I'm sorry I ever invented this. He was actually irked about the whole thing. 
So Schrodinger's cat experiment is a way of amplifying the idea of a wave function in a superposition of two possibilities, decayed atom or not decayed atom, to a macroscopic situation where you have an awake cat or an asleep cat. And the rules of quantum mechanics are saying the same logic that promoted an electron from just going in an orbit to being a cloud, a wave function, say that it's not that we don't know. It's not that the cat is either awake or asleep and we're just not sure. It's literally true, according to quantum mechanics, that the cat is in what we call a superposition of being awake and being asleep. It is both at the same time. So here is how we describe this. Classically, you would say the cat is either awake or, either, or it's asleep. Maybe it's one or the other. Maybe we don't know. That's fine. Maybe there's some probability when we open the box, we'll get an answer, just like we don't know who will win the next presidential election or so forth, but there is an answer. But in quantum mechanics, we say it's in a superposition. This is a different kind of reality that quantum mechanics opens up that classical mechanics doesn't, okay? It's a new kind of thing. That's what a wave function is. That's why quantum mechanics truly replaces classical mechanics as the paradigm, as the framework for thinking about physics. It's not just that things are awake or asleep, we just don't know, they're literally both at the same time. And then when you open the box, according to the Schrodinger, according to the Copenhagen interpretation, the Copenhagen interpretation insists that you treat observers as special, and as, in particular, classical objects. So in the Copenhagen interpretation, there's a classical world of you and me and big macroscopic things, and there's a quantum world at the microscopic level. So for notational purposes here, I put quantum things in parentheses and classical things in square brackets, okay? Here I put Niels Bohr, who's a big classical observer. Niels Bohr is one of the godfathers of quantum mechanics, one of the founders of the Copenhagen interpretation. And the way that we describe the situation before he opens the box is the cat is in a superposition, awake and asleep, but the observer just doesn't know. The observer has not yet opened the box. And then you open the box, you observe, and then either the state afterward is the cat's awake and the observer saw it awake, or the situation is the cat's asleep and the observer saw it asleep, okay? That's what we teach our students. This is the current state of the art among almost all physicists in terms of how well do we understand quantum mechanics, okay? Clearly, this is nonsense. This is clearly a failure as a supposedly rigorous theory that describes nature at its most fundamental. It's clearly unacceptable. Not because it's wrong, not because it doesn't fit the data, but because it's completely imprecise, okay? There are questions about this theory that really need to be answered. And let me just highlight two of them very quickly. One is what we might call the ontology problem. Ontology is what philosophers use, the word that philosophers use to describe what is real. Ontology is the study of being, okay? So we talked about wave functions, but we also talked about what you see when you look at a wave function. So what is real? Is the wave function a direct and complete representation of the world? Or is it just somehow a machine to convert our ignorance into predictions? Are there other variables in addition to the wave function? People like Einstein had the idea that there were particles with positions and there was also 
a wave function. So is the wave function just part of it? Or is the wave function have nothing to do with reality at all? So in quantum mechanics, when you ask people who are experts questions about what is really happening, they can't quite tell you because they don't agree on the answers to any of these questions. And then there's what we call the measurement problem. There was a whole separate set of rules in quantum mechanics for what happens to a system when you look at it. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be an observer? What does it mean to observe? How quickly does it happen? When does it happen? Do you need to be conscious? Is like somehow human consciousness playing a role here? Could the cat be an observer all by itself? What about a frog? What if I don't observe it very carefully? What if I just kind of glance at it? Does that count? Does that collapse the wave function? None of these questions are answered by the Copenhagen interpretation, so we would like to do better. There are many ways to do better. I'm gonna give you a sales pitch for my, set, my favorite way, which was invented by this guy, Hugh Everett, when he was still a graduate student in the 1950s. And roughly speaking, you can think of what Everett did as offering the physics community a little bit of quantum mechanical therapy. Basically, he said, you know, you're working too hard. You guys gotta chill out a little bit. You're trying too hard to make things complicated when a very simple, pristine, austere take on the problem works perfectly well. What if, Everett says, wave functions are all there is? There's no extra variables. There's no different way of describing reality. The wave functions don't represent our ignorance. They truly represent the world. And what if all they ever do is obey the Schrodinger equation? There's not some separate set of rules for what wave functions do when you look at them. That's horribly ill-defined, then you should be embarrassed, okay? What if every wave function always and simply obeys the equation that it should when you're not looking at it? In other words, here is the Everett interpretation of quantum mechanics. There's only one set of rules. They, they are obeyed all the time, and they're just like classical mechanics, but the system is a little bit richer. So you have a a wave function to describe systems rather than positions and velocities like you would in classical mechanics. And you have an equation that says how they evolve, the Schrodinger equation rather than Newton's laws, okay? He just says erase all of these ugly things that are giving us so much problem. Now, there is a reason why people didn't think of this decades before, right? I showed you the picture of the uranium decaying and you see little trajectories even though you're predicting that it should look like a big spherical puffy wave moving away. How, does, how do you reconcile that, Mr. Everett? The secret is in something that is very crucial, very central to quantum mechanics, but again, we don't emphasize it when we teach our students as undergraduates. It's becoming more central to modern quantum mechanics. It's the idea of entanglement. So I said that you can think of a wave function as describing a superposition of different possibilities, like the cat is awake plus the cat is asleep. It's not one or the other, it's truly a combination of both, okay? But what, what happens when you have more than one thing? Not just a cat, but something else in the universe. In classical mechanics, there'd be a state for the cat and a state for a dog and a state for you and separate ways of describing all the individual pieces. Quantum mechanics doesn't let you do that. Quantum mechanics says that everything is of a whole in some very direct sense. So one way of talking about it is think about the Higgs boson, okay? The Higgs boson we discovered for the first time just in 2012, it is an elementary particle. And the nice thing about the Higgs boson for my purposes today is that it doesn't spin. It has zero angular momentum. It just sits there quietly, okay? 
almost all elementary particles spin with a certain fixed frequency of spinning, like electrons absolutely spin. When you measure them, you either get them spinning clockwise or counterclockwise, what we call spin up or spin down. Those are the only choices, but they're always spinning some amount. You never get an electron that is not spinning. So we know from data that the Higgs boson can decay into two electrons. Really, since it's neutral, it's decaying into an electron and an anti-electron, the positron, but I'm just gonna, for simplicity, call it two electrons, okay? And we also know that those electrons are spinning and the Higgs boson was not. But angular momentum, the total amount of spin in the universe is conserved. Spin doesn't pop into existence out of nowhere. So we know that when the Higgs boson decays into two electrons, if one of the electrons is spinning one way, the other one has to be spinning the other way. We don't know which way either one of them is spinning, but we know they're spinning oppositely to each other, okay? So in other words, the way to think about it in quantum terms is what the Higgs boson decays into is a superposition, but it's not a random superposition of anything the two electrons could be doing. It's a superposition of electron one is spin up and electron two is spin down, plus electron one is spin down and electron two is spin up. If you think about all the things the particles could be doing, there could also be both of them are spin up or both of them are spin down, but that wouldn't conserve spin, so that's not allowed, okay? So the lesson of this is that if you asked, well, if I were to observe the spin of electron one, what would I see? Well, there's a 50-50 chance it's spin up or spin down. If I observe the spin of electron two, what do I see? 50-50 chance, spin up or spin down. But if I observe the spin of electron one and I see spin up, I instantly know that electron two is spin down. That's the only way that spin can be conserved in the world. So that's entanglement. Even though we don't know what either electron one or electron two are doing, we know that if one of them is doing something, the other one is doing something that we can figure out. There's a connection, a correlation, a relationship between the different subsystems of the universe. So this is so important, I'm gonna say exactly the same thing again. The point is, in classical mechanics, we can chop up the world into individual subsystems and describe each of them separately. You might think that in quantum mechanics we can do the same thing, but with wave functions. So you might think that we can talk about the wave function of electron one and the wave function of electron two, and maybe they can be a superposition of the two different spins. No, in quantum mechanics there is only one wave function, whatever it called the universal wave function, what we now usually call the wave function of the universe. So the only way to describe two electrons is by entangling them, or rather, we're allowed to describe them by entangling them. There are some states that are unentangled, that's okay, but entanglement is ubiquitous in nature. So for the decaying electrons in the Higgs boson case, the right way to describe the system is has this entangled superposition of two things going on, okay? Everett didn't invent this. This was invented by a guy named Albert Einstein, right? Einstein gets a bad rap when we talk about quantum mechanics. You sometimes are told, that Einstein was kind of getting old and conservative at that time. He couldn't handle the new hotness of quantum mechanics. All of that is rubbish. Einstein understood quantum mechanics better than anybody did. He just wasn't happy with it. He wasn't satisfied with it, and he shouldn't have been. But he couldn't figure out a better theory, so we're still a little stuck there. 
So Everett didn't invent entanglement, but he put it to use. In his version of quantum mechanics, there is only one wave function, and there's no separate classical world. So when you do the Schrodinger's cat experiment in Everettian quantum mechanics, the secret is you have to treat the observer as a quantum system also. There's nothing magical in Everettian quantum mechanics about observations or measurements. They're just different parts of the universe that interact with each other according to the laws of physics. And observers are parts of the universe just like everything else. So you treat both the cat and the observer as quantum mechanical systems part of the wave function of the universe. So we would say here that the cat is in a superposition there's an observer, played in this role by Hugh Everett, and the observer has not yet looked, right? The observer has not yet opened the box. So when the observer does open the box, we call that the measurement, and what happens is not a collapse of the wave function. What happens is the observer and the cat become entangled with each other. So just like the electrons, the wave function of the universe is a superposition of the cat's awake and the observer saw it awake, plus the cat's asleep and the observer saw it asleep. That's a much cleaner, crisper, more rigorous, quantitative way of thinking about things. But of course, there's a problem that none of us has ever felt like we were in a superposition of anything, right? No, there's plenty of times that in undergraduate physics labs, people have measured the spins of electrons. I hope that they've never put cats in boxes with poison gas, but they've certainly measured other quantum mechanical systems. And no one has ever said, oh yes, I'm in a superposition of seeing it spin clockwise and counterclockwise. So how in the world, this might be a very simple, clean, crisp, theoretical model, but how in the world do you reconcile it with our experience of the world? The answer is, remember, we said that there's not separate wave functions for different parts of the world. There's only one wave function for the entire universe. And here, I didn't give you the wave function of the entire universe, did I? I gave you the wave function for a cat and an observer. If I were more honest, I should include the entire rest of the universe. So let me do that. And I will discover a new phenomenon called decoherence. The entire rest of the universe I'm going to call the environment and represent it by a picture of leaves of grass, okay? So I don't know who invented the word environment, but generally the environment to a quantum physicist is just the entire part of the universe that we don't keep track of when we're doing our experiment. So I know what I'm doing, I know what the cat's doing, I don't know what the rest of the universe is doing, that's the environment. But that means that the environment includes all of the air in the room, all the photons coming down from the lights and so forth. I don't keep track of all that stuff, but that stuff is constantly interacting with the cat in the box, right? So long before I open the box, something called decoherence happens, where the cat becomes entangled with the environment. If the cat is asleep on the ground versus walking around and awake, the photons in the box will hit it differently. The environment responds and interacts differently with the cat depending on whether it's awake or whether it's asleep. That entangles the state. So even before you open the box, the universe is in a state of cat's awake and the environment has interacted with an awake cat, plus cat's asleep and the environment has interacted with a sleep cat and you. And then you open the box, you measure it, and then you see whether the cat is awake or asleep, okay? The same story I told you on the last slide, except now I'm being a little bit more honest because I'm including the environment. 
Why does that matter? Why does it make a difference that I include the environment? And the answer is because the environment in these two parts of the wave function is different. It's a separate kind of thing. And what that means is that if you ask, is there any effect of this part of the wave function on what happens in the other part, the answer is no. They don't affect each other anymore. What Everett realized was, he didn't use quite these words because the phrase decoherence and the ideas quite, hadn't quite been invented yet. But what he realized was that the reason why you don't feel like you're in a superposition of having seen the cat awake and having seen the cat asleep is because you're not one person anymore. Because these two parts of the wave function are completely independent of each other henceforth once decoherence has occurred. It is as if they have become separate worlds. What happened was not that the wave function collapsed because of some mystical and unexplained measurement event. What happened was that the very natural and mechanistic decoherence process has branched the wave function into two different parts which go their own way, which one part can never talk to the other part, no matter how much they try. Where there used to be a cat and a person, there are now two cats and two people for all intents and purposes. So Everett called this the relative state formulation of quantum mechanics because whether or not you saw the cat awake or asleep depends on where you are. It's relative to where you are in the wave function. No one was very fascinated by that until in the 1970s, Bryce DeWitt dubbed it the many worlds interpretation, and suddenly people got very, very interested. So the point is that nowhere along the line did Hugh Everett or anyone else say, you know what would make quantum mechanics better? Is if we added a lot of worlds to it. <laughs> That's not what happened. Nothing in here is anything other than a wave function obeying the Schrodinger equation. That is the entirety of the Everett interpretation of quantum mechanics. The worlds come along for the ride. The worlds were always there. It's been said that every other formulation of quantum mechanics, like the textbook or Copenhagen interpretation, is a disappearing worlds version of quantum mechanics. If you believe that an electron can be in a superposition of spinning clockwise and spinning counterclockwise, and you believe that quantum mechanics applies to the whole universe, then you should believe that the universe can be in a superposition of doing two very different things. And the laws of quantum mechanics imply that those two very different things will not talk to each other. They don't know that each other are there. They are, for all intents and purposes, separate worlds. That's why it makes sense to call it the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. But the space of all wave functions is no bigger in many worlds than it is anywhere else. We didn't add anything to it. All we did was erase some dumb and unnecessary rules. The price we pay is that there are a lot of other worlds. That's a prediction of the Schrodinger equation. So there are many issues that people have with the many worlds interpretation. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. Some of them are easy to answer, some of them are harder to answer. I would like to pay you the compliment of spending the rest of my talk talking about my favorite good question about the many worlds interpretation. So there are other questions like, where do all the worlds live? How many worlds are there? Like, how do you test this theory? There are answers to all of those, and they're in my book. You can buy the book, okay? 
But what I want to answer, what I want to talk about is the question that I think is most interesting, which is hard to answer. In fact, there are two of them, but I only really have time to talk about one. So there are two questions about many worlds that in my mind are the most reasonable and important right now. One is the idea of probabilities. Remember that in the Copenhagen interpretation, we said you couldn't predict the probability of getting any particular answer. All you could do, sorry, you couldn't predict what answer you were going to get. All you could do is predict that you could get different answers with different probabilities. Now, many worlds is an entirely deterministic theory. The Schrodinger equation has no probabilities in it at all. You have a wave function and it evolves, and you can evolve it forward and backward in time. There's no loss of information, there's no irreversibility, there's no stochastic jumps or anything like that. Everything is perfectly smooth. So how in the world do you come to say that for some reason there's a probability of getting certain answers? So, there is a, an answer to that. The very short version is, let me give you the very short version here. Over here, there's this moment. The wave function of the universe has already branched, right? Because decoherence is what branches the wave function. So this person who thinks he's only one person is actually two. There's a version of the observer that is on the branch where the cat's awake, and there's a version of the observer that is on the branch where the cat's asleep. But neither one of those knows which branch they're on. The branching of the wave function always happens faster than you learn about it. So even if you know the entire wave function of the universe at this moment in time, you don't know where you are in it. You don't know what branch you're on. And you can ask, is there any way to credibly assign a probability to being on different branches? And the answer is yes, and it's exactly the rule that we teach our students in undergraduate quantum mechanics that it's the wave function squared. All right, there's a longer story there, but that is uh, the basic idea. The other question, which I think is fascinating, is how does the classical world emerge? If everything is wave functions and they just obey the Schrodinger equation, if there's no separate macroscopic classical reality, why does the world look so darn classical? Albert Einstein teased a friend of his once by asking, do you really think the moon isn't there when no one is looking at it? Well, it is. Of course it is there. In fact, we can predict where the moon will be millions of years in the future. And we don't use the Schrodinger equation to do that. We use Newtonian gravity or even better Einstein's theory of gravity. So why is that? Why does the world look solid? Why does it seem to be pretty well approximated by classical physics? That's what I really want to get to. So the issue here, when I'm talking at least to my fellow physicists, there's, there's a problem that I need to convince them first that there is a problem, and then that I might be able to solve it. So no one thinks there's a problem, because you see the classical world. There's the podium. Here it is. Why do I have to find it in a wave function somewhere, right? So we are so trained by our experience in the world to think classically that when we do physics, we start with classical stuff, and then we build a quantum mechanical theory of it. So we start with electromagnetism or quarks or whatever. We start with a classical version of these objects, and then we what we call quantize that description. So we start with cats, leaves, people, 
and we do some mathematical tricks to turn it into a wave function. And the mathematical description of that wave function is, it's a vector living in a big vector space. You don't need to know those details. I drew a three-dimensional vector space here. The real vector space has a lot more than three dimensions. It's not space, it's not where we live. It's a mathematical object. It could be infinite dimensional for all we know. We don't really know that. The point is, nature doesn't do this. Reality doesn't start with some classical stuff and then quantize it. Reality is this quantum from the beginning. So if we were to follow nature, what we should do is start with a wave function and ask why does that wave function appear to us to, to describe classical things like cats and grass and people? That's a harder question than you might have thought, and we should have been studying this question for the last half a century, but we've been completely ignoring it, okay? And there's many things to say about this question, but I wanna focus on one because it is the most speculative and, and ill-understood, but it's also possibly the most profound. Because as much as we say, you know, we don't understand quantum mechanics, there's another problem that we don't know the answer to, which is gravity, right? Einstein became famous not for his work on quantum mechanics, although he won the Nobel Prize for quantum mechanics. Einstein never won a Nobel Prize for relativity in one of the great tragedies of the Nobel Prize. He invented the fact that light is quantized into what we call photons. That's what he won the Nobel Prize for. But what he became famous for was the theory of relativity, in particular general relativity, the idea that we live not just in space evolving with time, but in space-time, in a single four-dimensional manifold, and that space-time is you and I think of as gravity, as the reason why apples fall from trees or the earth goes around the sun, is because all of this stuff is moving in a curved space-time. So we would like to take that idea, space-time is curved and gives us gravity, and reconcile it with quantum mechanics. General relativity is an entirely classical theory. It's very much at home in the Newtonian paradigm. For all of the other forces of nature, electricity, magnetism, the nuclear forces, and for all the particles that we know about, quantum mechanics works great. Quantum mechanics describes everything that's going on. Gravity is the one exception. And maybe that's because gravity is somehow deeper than these other things. Gravity is not a field or a particle living on space-time. Gravity is space-time itself. But when we've tried to take Einstein's theory and quantized it, we failed. So maybe these problems are related to each other. Maybe the fact that we don't understand quantum mechanics is holding us back from understanding quantum gravity in a fundamental way. So let's try to do this. Let's try to get classical general relativity out of quantum mechanics. And this is the part where no one is gonna understand anything. No, you will understand some things, but this is definitely the more challenging part, so don't feel bad if your level of comprehension is only 98% as opposed to the 100% it was for the first part of the talk. This is cutting edge stuff. This is stuff that we professional physicists don't ourselves understand. We're trying to figure it out right now. What we can do is we can take hints from what we do understand. So we do understand the other forces of nature, the non-gravitational forces. Like I said, electricity, magnetism, the nuclear forces, etc. And the answer for those forces is that forces and matter are all described not by particles but by fields. So this is separate from the wave function. The wave function is a quantum object 
And when we were just doing little electrons moving around atoms, we took a particle and we promoted it to a wave function. What quantum field theory does is take a field and promote it to a wave function. So it's fieldiness on top of fieldiness, okay? And this kind of makes sense for things like the forces you know about electricity and magnetism. You know about the electric field, the magnetic field. But even for particles, this is how modern physics describes things. There are fields stretching through space, and then if you start them vibrating, that looks to us like a particle, okay? So the difference between quantum particles and quantum fields is that in a particle theory, empty space is boring. Empty space is just empty. There's a particle here, a particle there. In between, there's literally nothing but space. But in quantum field theory, empty space is an exciting place. Even when there's no particles there, there's still fields. Even if the electric field is zero at a particular location in space, there is still a thing there called the electric field. It just has a value of zero, if you know what I mean. And likewise for the gravitational field, likewise for all the other fields. So in quantum field theory, we can talk about vibrating, jiggling modes, as we say, of all the quantum fields making up all of nature at every point in space. And guess what? These modes are entangled with each other. And how much they're entangled depends on how far away they are. So if you pick two regions of space that are nearby, the modes that are vibrating in empty space will be highly entangled with each other. If you pick two regions that are far away, the modes vibrating in empty space will be almost completely unentangled. That is our understanding on the basis of conventional, well-understood quantum field theory without gravity. But what I'm saying is we should stop quantizing classical things like fields and just start with a wave function and get all that stuff out. So that includes space itself. In a wave function, there's nothing that is singled out as space versus matter versus energy or anything like that. Part of our task in extracting the classical world from a quantum wave function is saying, what is space itself? What do you mean by the distance between two different things? So here's our guess, and right now it's just a guess. We don't know. In ordinary physics, as we understand it, if there are two regions that are nearby, they become highly entangled. If there are two regions that are far away, they're not very entangled. Let's turn that around. Let's play that game backwards. If two parts of the quantum wave function are highly entangled, let's define that to be what we mean by nearby. If they're not very entangled, let's define that what to be what we mean by far away. In other words, let's define the distance between different things in space by how entangled they are in the gigantic wave function of the universe. The more entanglement, the, the shorter the distance, okay? And what that does is, depending on how things are entangled with each other, it gives us a geometry. The geometry need not be the flat tabletop geometry of Euclid. Depending on how all the different vibrating fields are entangled with each other, you can get whatever geometry you want. With this emergent notion of space, it's perfectly natural for geometry to be curved, if that's what it wants to be. So that's fact number one. Geometry is related to entanglement. Fact number two is that entanglement is related to entropy. Entropy, you might know, is, how, is what we use to describe systems where we don't completely know what's going on. 
We know, for example, for the air in this room, it's made of molecules, it's made of atoms, but we don't know where exactly every molecule and atom is, right? So the less we know, the more entropy something has. Entropy is a measure of our ignorance. This guy, John von Neumann, pointed out that in quantum mechanics, you can know everything, and there are still things you don't know. There can still be entropy, even if you know the entire wave function of the universe. Because look, here are two systems, A and B, that are entangled with each other. Let's say we know their wave function. But remember the spins, right? Spin up, spin down, the electrons. I can know the total wave function, and I still don't know the wave function of the first electron, because it's entangled with the other one. So von Neumann says, if A is entangled with B, then A has an entropy. There's something we don't know about it because it's unknowable. Some of its knowledge is leaked out into that entanglement. So he defined a formula for how much entropy there is given by the amount of entanglement. So you can measure entanglement by calculating the entropy. The more entangled, the higher the entropy. Fact number two. Fact number three, entropy is related to energy. So I showed you a picture of empty space where there were no particles in it, and I said everything is entangled with everything else. If I break a little bit of the entanglement, if I take a little part of space and cut that off so it's not entangled with the region around it, and it's vibrating faster, I call that a particle. So that means that the entanglement between that region and the rest of the world has gone down, and in the process I've created energy in the form of a particle there. So there's another equation that I'm not going to show you, but there is an equation which relates the entropy in a region to the amount of energy in that region. There's a minus sign so that as the entropy goes down, the energy goes up, but still, they're proportional to each other. So look at what we have. We very naturally have, and again, we didn't put anything in. This is what naturally comes out. Geometry is related to entanglement. Entanglement is related to entropy. And entropy is related to energy. Therefore, geometry is related to energy. The geometry of this emergent space that we are extracting from the quantum mechanical wave function very naturally is responding to the amount of energy in the region of space that we're talking about. But this fact that the geometry of space responds to the amount of energy in it is exactly, stop that. <laughs> Talk about a dramatic moment, all right, is exactly Einstein's general relativity. This is what general relativity is. Just like in Newtonian gravity, the gravitational force field depends on how much mass an object has. In general relativity, the curvature of space depends on how much energy there is in that region of space. This is another equation. You don't have to worry about the details. The point is just that there is an equation, and the equation says the curvature of space-time is related to the amount of energy in it. So, what is the lesson that we've learned? The last few slides are sketching out a very speculative program for trying to extract the classical world from the quantum mechanical wave function in a way that secretly makes intimate use of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Because in every other interpretation of quantum mechanics, they put the classical world in by hand, one way or another. Copenhagen does it, hidden variables theory do it, all the different alternatives to many worlds. Many worlds is the most quantum 
of all the different ways you can be quantum mechanical. And so it is perfectly suited to this program of forgetting that we know that there's a classical world, starting with a truly quantum description and extracting space and time and the rest of the classical world from it. The good news seems to be that maybe the reason we have not succeeded in quantizing gravity is because that's not what we should have been doing at all. We shouldn't have been starting with gravity and quantizing it. We should have been starting with quantum mechanics and finding gravity within it. So far, so good is what I would say for the prospects of this program, but it's still very early, and I'm the first one to say it might crash and burn. If my little introduction to it didn't make perfect sense the first time, my strong advice is there's a book <laughs> that has more details. Uh, I wrote it. You can read it. You can buy it right here. Thank you very much for coming. We're going to open it up to an audience Q&A just for a, a few minutes here. So uh, if you have a question, please raise your hand, and I'll try to get to as many people as possible, starting in the front row. A couple of weeks ago on your podcast, you discussed intellectual vices with Professor Kassam. In this world that you're in, uh, how prone might people be to wishful thinking and confirmation bias? And particularly older people who would like to wrap it all up before they're gone. <laughs> This is an excellent question, yeah. So uh, I was, was briefly mentioning in, in the introduction, I do have a podcast called Mindscape. You're welcome to subscribe to that. Um, and I, I, I don't only talk about physics. I also talk to a whole bunch of people doing different things, including philosophers and neuroscientists and so forth. So I talked to Kasim Kassam, who is an epistemologist, a philosopher of knowledge and learning. And we talked about intellectual vices, including wishful thinking and stubbornness and things like that, things that get in the way of finding the truth. And you know what? Physicists are exactly as prone as anyone else to these kinds of intellectual vices, no more or no less. You might think that older physicists are more likely to be desperately rushing around chasing every idea, hoping that they finally hit the right one because their time is running out. But the truth is the opposite. Maybe this is not so surprising. The older physicists are much more likely to be stick in the muds that stick with whatever theory they've been working on for the last 30 years, even if it's not really very promising. Um, there is a joke. It's not a great joke, but it's you know the only way that science progresses is through the death of old scientists, right? Um, especially when you're in a field where there's not a lot of data. Gravity is hard to collect data with. Quantum gravity, it's next to impossible just because gravity is a really weak force. So progress is slow exactly because of that, and that's where intellectual vices can become a real problem. So all that we can do is try really, really hard to not succumb to those vices. There's no magic bullet for avoiding them individually. Question in the fourth row? Yeah. Uh, to most people, a, an awfully lot of what you just said sounds even weirder than Harry Potter and Deepak Chopra. And so how do you separate your highly speculative positions from their highly speculative positions? Sure. 
I mean, that's actually a very good question because I completely get that it does sound that way. Um, here's the answer. I have that and they don't. <laughs> There's two things that science has uh, that, and it's, it's only half, the, half of a joke because there's two things that science has going for it that other crazy sounding things don't. One is, it is rigorous and quantitative, right? There's no wiggle room here. It would be very, very easy to do an experiment which showed that the Schrodinger equation was false, right? And then you'd be stuck. You'd have to change your theory somehow. The second is, we have experiments, right? We are constantly trying to make uh, ourselves famous by showing that our favorite theories are false. Like, there's this feeling out there among non-scientists sometimes that scientists are defensive and want to, you know, come to the rescue of general relativity or the Big Bang Theory or quantum mechanics when it's under siege. But really, the way you become a famous scientist is to show that Einstein was wrong, not to show that he was right, right? So the great thing about science is it's full of people who are trying to tear down the established wisdom. That's really what separates it from other crazy things. The other thing I should say is scientists aren't trying to be crazy. They're not trying to sound very, very unrealistic. They're trying to fit the data. And what happens is, since the time of Copernicus, as we've learned more and more about the universe, our scientific theories have become less and less like our everyday experience. And that should be completely unsurprising, because our scientific theories are encompassing greater and greater realms that are bigger and bigger compared to our everyday experience. The realm of quantum mechanics is so far away from what we see in our everyday lives, it should be completely unsurprising that it seems counterintuitive to us. Question in the third row. Yeah, hi. Um, when you were talking about entanglement, uh, sometimes you spoke of it as though it were, they were discrete. It was kind of this binary on-off, yes-no kind of thing. Other times you spoke of it as a very continuous curve. And I'm wondering, is, is, so is there like some kind of a threshold where things become experienced as discrete on an otherwise continuous curve? I, I don't know. Yeah, no, actually this is a wonderful question uh, in the sense that it's really hard to answer. Uh, the amount of entanglement between two things is not discrete. It can go from zero to some maximum number. Um, and it often does. The, the, the very word quantum in quantum mechanics is something of a misnomer. Like I said, uh, quantum field theory is like waviness on top of waviness. The quantumness comes about just because when you solve Schrodinger's equation, you get these solutions that look different from each other and they sort of form a discrete set. So it's a set of discrete things, but the discrete things are waves, okay? Quantum mechanics is really a theory of waves, and that means it's a, not a pixelated theory of a discrete universe in any sense. So you should think of everything as sort of being smooth and there's no thresholds, but we live in a world that is very, very close to a classical world where it's a very, very good approximation to say that things either are or are not entangled with each other. very much for this nice talk uh, and I appreciate the courage to, to go against the classical. Um, <laughs> uh, 
So does uh, Schrodinger uh, equation explains the difference between a dead body and a live body? What are the parameters in the Schrodinger equation that, that is associated to a dead body and a live body? And does the Schrodinger equation explains this phenomena or we need something else or a field, field theory? Is, is the body needs a field to be alive? That's my question. Right. The Schrodinger equation does a perfectly good job in distinguishing between alive bodies and dead bodies. Because the difference between a live body and a dead body is whether or not there is activity in the brain. And activity in the brain is electrochemical. And electricity and chemicals are governed by the Schrodinger equation. That would be my answer. And I'm up here. We have time for two more questions. So fourth row and then front row. Hi. Um, you mentioned uh, the idea of not feeling like we live in a superposition. Um, do you think that free will and choice, whatever that means, is a way for observers to choose their wave function, or is it, do you think it's maybe the other way around? Uh, it's the other way around. So the question <laughs> is, is there any somehow free will being involved in choosing your wave function? There's no choice in the wave function. The wave function very, very rigidly obeys this equation in my version of quantum mechanics. Now. It can be the case that on different branches, you know, the electrons in your brain did slightly different things, so it, it manifests itself at the macroscopic level as you making different choices. But it's the electrons doing different things on different branches of the wave function that made you make a different choice, not you making a choice that made the electrons do something different. Causality always goes up in levels, never down. There are two questions up here. Okay, um, here's my question. Hey, Robin. Hi, John. Um, here's my question. It's when you say the universe is a wave function, my difficult, one of my difficulties with this whole interpretation is the meaning that's attached to being a wave function. I mean, in classical mechanics, when we talk, we give x and y position and momentum, for instance, to a particle. We already have a concept of a particle, like a billiard ball, from our everyday experience, but one of the unique things about quantum mechanics, at least when it started, it had to define what a wave function is in terms of observation. Otherwise, it's just a meaning, it's just a mathematical symbol, has no meaning. It's like saying, oh, the universe is X and Y, or the universe is a matrix. Well, what is that, you know, mathematical matrix, what does that mean? So I'm wondering, when you say it's just a wave function, what, how do you attach a meaning to the idea of the wave function? Yeah, I think it's exactly the same thing, personally, in classical mechanics as in quantum mechanics. In classical mechanics, there is a journey you take when you do science from the data of your senses, of your everyday experience, to some mathematical formalization of the theory. In classical mechanics, yeah, we start with like objects and particles and things like that. And then if you're Isaac Newton, you say, I assign positions and velocities to these. And then if you're William Rowan Hamilton, you say, it's actually better to think of it as positions and momenta. And then when you become a mathy 20, 20th century uh, physicist, you say, the world is a point in a symplectic manifold. 
but it's still classical mechanics. It's still the same world. And the same thing is true in quantum mechanics. You start with tracks in bubble chambers and so forth, and you say, okay, I have a probability distribution. I'm gonna call that a wave function. It's complex numbers. And then you say, really, it's an element in a normed complete vector space that I call Hilbert space. But to me, it's exactly the same kind of process. So sometimes I'm sloppy and I say the world is a wave function. What I really mean is, there's a world, and the thing it is, is the world. And the best theory I have of the world is that it's completely isomorphic to a complex vector obeying the Schrodinger equation. Hi, thanks for coming out. I know you said you were gonna talk about the interesting questions about quantum mechanics, but I've already bought the book, so you Good. have my money. All right. And I think most people- I don't have room. to please you now. <laughs> no, not at all. Your work but here am, is done. But I am interested in how one might go about experimentally testing something like a many-world right. hypothesis. Maybe, as I read your book, I'll find out that you don't believe that there's many worlds splitting and that there aren't in different locations or... No, no, I, I believe it. All right. I so haven't then, been... So then, so then, I mean, I assume then that there's a lot of pushback that this could be some uh, unfalsifiable claim if you don't have some kind of way to test it. Yes, but in that case, I can once again appeal to authority. One of the biggest fans of the many worlds interpretation was Karl Popper, who invented the idea of falsifiability. And the reason is, for those of you who know just a tiny bit of philosophy of science, you might have come across the idea that a good scientific theory should be falsifiable. And people debate about whether or not that's the best way of thinking about things. I think it's not, but Popper was on to something, right? And certainly if a theory is falsifiable, which says there could in principle be an experiment you could do such that if you got a certain result of that experiment, you would say my theory is wrong, okay? If that's true, it is scientific. I think that's sufficient, if not necessarily necessary. But it's absolutely satisfied by the many worlds theory, because this is the many worlds theory. Systems are described by wave functions, and wave functions obey the Schrodinger equation. Both of those statements are eminently falsifiable. Find other variables, other physical things in addition to wave functions, or see a wave function not obeying the Schrodinger equation. And in fact, there are alternatives to many worlds which take advantage of both of those possibilities, and there are experimental tests going on right now to test them. So if you make a, so th there's one theory called the GRW theory, where wave functions really collapse, but not when you look at them, they just collapse spontaneously all by themselves with a tiny probability per particle, but if you have a whole lot of particles, it will happen before too long. So if you have a really cold collection of atoms, in Everettian quantum mechanics, it will just sit there doing nothing near absolute zero. In GRW, occasionally one of the atoms will collapse its wave function and the thing will heat up a little bit. So you can test that. And they're testing it. If they find that things that are very cold spontaneously heat up, Everett will have been falsified. Can we give a huge round of applause for Professor Sean Carroll? You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. 
The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.